All right. Well, <clears throat> today is going to be a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit different, a little bit maybe unusual. I'm going to try to not be too meandering in my approach, um, <clears throat> but there's some things that have kind of come together in my mind as I've looked at this next section um, as we kind of make our way through this survey of Acts and and we're kind of winding down the first 30 years of the church's history as it's recorded for us in Acts and seeing seeing the events that take place um, next after what we closed off in Acts chapter 20 and looking at this profile of spiritual leadership that we see and in, in when the Apostle Paul was addressing the Ephesian elders in Miletus, we talked about that last week, um, a lot of things are kind of coming together in my mind um, as, I, as I read through this and, and thought and reflected on the events that took place um, and really just kind of thinking about all that we've talked about so far. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm not coming <clears throat> to you from any kind of standpoint of, you know, of a prophet or that I've got some special word from the Lord or anything like that, but I do have this strong sense. It's just kind of something that's I don't know, been building in my heart um, and in my mind, and, and maybe I'm just kind of realizing it. Maybe I'm late to the game here. But um, <clears throat> I, I, just, I just believe that what we are doing here um, in this community, in terms of the ministries of Faith Community Church, are extremely important in this time. Now, that is an easy thing to say, of course. We're about the gospel, we're about the, the preaching and teaching of God's word, we're about uh, serving others and, and building one another up in this community, we're about reaching out. I mean, of course, the ministry of the church as a general principle is important. But when I think about w- what we are doing, and, and even, even, with this, even, this, even with this Building Faith Initiative and this effort to develop a, a new facility on this property... All the thinking and, and uh, direction that's going into that, to me, is tied to what it is I'm trying to kind of articulate to you. And I'll just say it this way. Um, we are living in a day and time, I believe, where um, people do not have their lives nor their faith rooted in anything historic that people are more inclined to live their lives based upon a current events kind of mindset and react to events as they happen based upon, you know, some collection of, you know, experiences maybe when they were younger, uh, some information they're gathering from friends or relationships, some notions of, of career ambition that are driving their decisions and their reactions to things. That, that my point is that, is that we are less and less tied to things that are substantive and rooted in things that have come before us. And I think that that's especially true when you think about practices of faith, uh, the practice of the church, how the church identifies itself and its ministries. And it's interesting that you see some of this uh, really playing out uh, effectively and clearly in the, in the context of Acts chapter 21 and following, as we're continuing our study of the early church's history, that this absence of being rooted in, in something that has happened in the past um, and in the, in the substance of what has happened historically, and it leaves people kind of 
um, constantly reacting to trends of the day, of, of interests of the day, of things that make me feel good about my life today or whatever it might be. You guys gave me some feedback last week about the church in that regard, and, and several of the things that were mentioned had to do with the church being more consumer-driven in its ministries, uh, more oriented toward uh, you know, pleasing a crowd or drawing a crowd than, than anything else. And the fact of the matter is, is that, that what we are doing here is oriented toward a historic faith that was once delivered. And, it's, and, and we've seen this play out over and over again where the Apostle Paul goes with the same message and the same approach from town to town. And he starts in the synagogue and he reasons from the scriptures and he's met with some acceptance but a lot of rejection. And then he moves to the Gentiles and he's met with some acceptance and some rejection. And over and over and over again, eventually run out of town probably or goes to the next stop, same thing over and over and over again. And we see this as a recurring theme because the issue is not the method, the issue is the truth and the message, the transcendent nature of the message. It's, it's the eternal power and transcendency of the truth of God's revelation of himself in and through Jesus Christ and in and through this gospel presentation of salvation by grace through faith in Christ that we, we are standing on and that we are proclaiming over and over and over again the same message because it is the power of God to salvation to those that believe, as Paul said in Romans. But we're living in a day and time where, where even the church has sort of lost, in many, in many quarters, it's lost its connection. It's, it's looking for something new, some new contrivance, some new way to appeal to more and more people. And it's, it's, it, what that yields up is it yields up uh, a greater and greater reliance upon the cleverness and ingenuity of men rather than on the power of the message of the gospel and the truth and transcendence of God's word. So even so far as you think about what we're doing as a church and in, in, even in the design of this new facility, we want it to have a reflection of something historic, something rooted in something old, something past. The thought that's going into that, to make a statement by the sheer physical presence of it, that this, is, this is a, that this is a historic faith that's tied to a revelation. Even when you think about the arguments surrounding origins that are so prevalent today in terms of the, the, the hostility of sort of a militant version of Darwin, uh, naturalistic Darwinianism and materialism as a, as a comprehensive worldview and its antagonism to anything of faith or religion. It's no longer just this is what we believe and you believe that. It's what you believe is the source of evil in the world. That's how religious faith is now being attacked in the marketplace of ideas from those who would be more on the militant side of atheism. Even in that regard, our appeal is to something that happened in the past. Something that's old. Not something that's new. Not some new fangled discovery of something about space-time that you know, is, is lock-certain about how the world began, or whatever it might be. It's a constant appeal to history and to the past. Well, you see this happen with the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to try to tie this back to uh, some things that are going on, I think, in our day and time that I think are really troubling. But you see this taking place where the Apostle Paul, after he leaves Miletus, after having this heartfelt uh, address 
to the Ephesian elders. He had grown to love as he was ministering among them for three years there in Ephesus. And we have this great profile of true spiritual leadership in the body of Christ and in the church that, that he gives for us there that we talked about last week. He begins what is really ultimately this long and somewhat winding journey to Rome by way of Jerusalem. His intent was to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem and be there for Passover. Um, but ultimately, this, the, 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 way, the, the, the flow of the narrative takes us eventually to Paul ending up in Rome. And that's where the story sort of ends off as far as Luke's record of it in Acts. But we see the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21. And he departs Ephesus in his, in, in his time with the elders there in Miletus. And he, he begins to make his way to Jerusalem, but he makes a few stops along the way, and I just want to kind of highlight a few of them. We're not going to spend a lot of time you know, diving deep into the details of this. He makes several stops along the way, some for just practical reasons. It's just part of the journey. It's a stop off for some reason or another. Maybe the, the, it's where the ship was normally going to stop, whatever the case may be. But, but Luke does record a few things that I think are helpful for us to highlight. For example, one of the stops he makes in Acts chapter 21, verses 3 to 4, in Tyre of Syria. He stays there in this place for seven days. And he, he stays with some fellow believers there that he had come across or that he had known from, uh, from past ministry there. And one of the things that they do is they're appealing to him to not go to Jerusalem. They are, they are aware and mindful of what awaits him in Jerusalem. So in other words, there's a, there's a known, growing atmosphere of hostility, of sort of a finality, if you will, to, to on the, on the, in the mind of the Jews who rejected the Christ, to end this thing, end this new sect, end this blasphemous new um, abomination to uh, Judaism. There was, there was growing hostility and of course, Jerusalem being the epicenter of all of that, uh, the believers there warn the Apostle Paul not to go to Jerusalem because of the danger that he's going to face there. And then you, you see in, in Acts chapter 21, he makes this other stop in Caesarea. And, and interestingly enough, he stays in the home of Philip. It's, this to me is a great, a great testimony that Luke drops in there for us. He stays in the home of Philip, the evangelist, or one of the original seven uh, deacons, if you will, that were chosen to help serve the church there at the beginning of the church's founding early on. Um, but Philip, this, this, we're now looking at some 30 years since that time, and you still have Philip, this faithful man of God, serving now in Caesarea. Remember in Acts chapter 6, Philip was the one who as a result of the intense persecution that picked up in Jerusalem and led by Saul, now Paul, but led by Saul, Jewish people, Jewish believers scatter, and Philip is the one that goes to Samaria and takes the gospel to Samaria and brings that gospel witness to Samaria. And now here we see this full circle reference to him where the Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and really this is, the, this is the wind down of Paul's um, ministry, and he stops off with Philip there in Jerusalem. And, I mean, excuse me, not in Jerusalem, in, in Caesarea, and reconnects with him and stays with him. And you see this full circle kinship between Paul and, and Philip as they, they reconnect there and, 
and spend time together. But this long faithfulness in the truth and in gospel ministry is the, is the indication that you have here, particularly of Philip and the camaraderie that they established over these long many years of faithfulness in the gospel witness and gospel mission. But it's also on this stop in Caesarea where you have a similar situation that what you, what you saw uh, in Tyre of Syria where you have these believers warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Well, in, in, in Caesarea... You see here where, where this visit from Agabus, the prophet, uh, Agabus shows up and prophesies Paul's imminent arrest by the Jews. In, in chapter 21, verses 10 to 14, it says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, Luke says in first person, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded... We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So you get this glimpse of the concern that the believers have for Paul's well-being, but you also see the Apostle Paul committed to going to Jerusalem under the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit and being fully willing to be imprisoned or even to die for the sake of the gospel. That's just, that's just the way of it. Now, I, I, I bring that up as an example, first of all, just to indicate the, the kind of mindset that the apostle had about ministry and mission and even life itself in terms of ultimate purpose. You have two occasions where people around him who love him, who care about him, who share like precious faith with him, who are warning him, don't go to Jerusalem. And so it would be very easy, I think, in that situation for him to say, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't. I mean, maybe, maybe these, these people are right. Maybe I shouldn't. But for him, this wasn't about his own safety, and it never was. It was about him honoring the Lord and following the Holy Spirit's leadership for him to make this journey and go back to Jerusalem. And so it demonstrates a level of courage, but it also demonstrates the kind of mindset that is supposed to be characteristic of true followers of Christ. Now, in light of what we see in our day and time, what is being promulgated are things, are, are methods of ministry and approaches that are oriented toward removing every possible conceivable obstacle to anyone coming to faith in Christ, quote-unquote, and to making the, the, the people's understanding of what it means to follow Christ as easy for them to get to as possible. And yet you have the Apostle Paul demonstrating by sheer testimony about his intention to go to Jerusalem to say, I mean, even if I have to die or be imprisoned for the sake of Jesus Christ, that's what I'll do. The very nature of Paul's ministry in Acts is so counter to what much gospel, quote-unquote, ministry is starting to look like in our day and time, and even in our community. And it's somewhat alarming. Well, he goes on, I'm going to tie this all up here in just a minute, but he, he goes on just to give us a little more context here. He goes on from there, and he makes his way ultimately to Jerusalem. 
And he ends up meeting up with James and all the elders there. We see this in chapter 21, verses 17 to 19. He reports to them in, in detail. It says, word for word, he reports to them uh, what, what the Lord had done through his ministry among the Gentiles. He gives, this, give, gives, this, gives them this wonderful report of, of God's faithfulness and God's work of bringing salvation in his gospel witness to the Gentiles. And it tells us there that they, they rejoiced, they, they, they praised and worshiped God as a result of this great report. But they also themselves were concerned about Paul's well-being. You'll see there in um, Acts chapter 21, verses 17 and following, you see that, that they say to him in verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God after he gave them this report. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? In other words, he's saying, look, there's a problem here with you being here. The Jews are, are going to come after you because the, 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 the message that's out there, the word on the street about you, is that you're not just taking a different kind of message to the Gentiles, but you're in fact instructing the Jews who are among the Gentiles to completely abandon the law of Moses altogether, that it's not important. To abandon the historic nature of the faith and abandon it altogether. And they say to him, they they go on and say, uh, what then is to be done? And they say, they will certainly hear that you have come. And then they say in verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This is a, a Nazarite vow. This is a, a vow of, of, of consecration. Of You can read about it in, I think, Numbers 6, verses 1 to 14 or something like that. But it's this vow of, of, um, of consummate consecration and separation as unto the Lord for a set period of time. And there's, there's certain ceremonial things that, that they would do to, to demonstrate this this, um, this period of, of consecration. It's just a, sort of a, a traditional um, vow of, of separation and consecration unto the Lord for a period of time. And so there, he says there, we have four men who are under this vow. Take these men and purify yourself. So they're telling Paul to go join these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, which is part of this Nazarite vow. You can read about in Numbers. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter. So then he refers to the letter that they sent after the Jerusalem council that we, read, that we talked about in Acts chapter 15. We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men. So Paul follows this council. He took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So in other words, the Apostle Paul was was more than willing to follow this counsel and to go through this process, this Nazarite vow process, to demonstrate that there's no need to absolutely obliterate everything related to the historic faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul, over and over again, in fact, his ultimate objective and what really set the Jewish people off that rejected the Savior was the fact that he was connecting or, or calling out that, that this was the fulfillment of everything that they knew from the Law and the Prophets. 
That's what, was, that's what they would become so exercised over, over. But nevertheless, he was willing to do this to demonstrate that I am not in any way seeking to completely abolish everything that was handed to us as part of God's revelation of himself throughout redemptive history. I, I'm, that's, not, that's not what the message of the gospel is all about. Well, this doesn't work, obviously, because Paul ends up being arrested. You see that uh, on down in the chapter where he's arrested. They, they falsely accuse him. They accuse him of bringing, bringing a Gentile into the temple. And he ends up going through all these different uh, trials. They actually were, were going to threaten to beat him. They actually do beat him, and, and he does uh, suffer for a, a, a bit. But, um, but he actually, because of his Roman citizenship, he's kind of delivered from that. And he's, he's taken into the, the, the um, custody by the Roman authorities. He ultimately ends up being sent to Caesarea, which is the sort of the, the Roman provincial capital of that region. And he, he goes on this trial, this trial period over this several years, where he appear, appears before Felix the governor. Um, and then Felix ends up leaving and is replaced by Festus. And he, he's, he's on trial and before Festus, and the Jews are coming up to Caesarea to sort of accuse him and try to get them to release him to their custody. Ultimately, they want to ambush him and kill him. I mean, they're after him, and he's kind of being protected because he's a Roman citizen. And then eventually, he, he appears, or Agrippa, King Agrippa II, shows up, and, and he appears before him and speaks to him uh, and, and kind of pleads his case with him. Now, through this whole period, you have these two unique um, situations. You have these two unique sections where the Apostle Paul gives testimony to his salvation experience on the road to Damascus. Again, appealing back in time to the fact that he was raised a Pharisee, believed in the law and the prophets, and yet his eyes had to be opened to how the message of the gospel and Christ himself and his death and burial and resurrection was the fulfillment of everything that they had hoped for in the Law and the Prophets. And he appeals to a time in the past where he was brought from the domain of darkness, didn't understand the mystery that he refers to in Ephesians, and he was brought into the light, literally and spiritually, into the light to see the truth of the gospel with this direct vision and this direct communication with Christ and this dramatic salvation experience. And so we have this encounter on two different occasions where he is actually pleading for his very life, if you will, and his appeal is not to anything clever or unique or manipulative or any such thing. It's an appeal to actually events that happened, and it's an appeal to his own experience of salvation as he was really confronted by Christ himself and and had to acknowledge the fact that he was a sinner in need of a Savior, just like anyone else who comes to faith in Christ. So these two things happen, this this recounting of his, his witness, or excuse me, this recounting of his conversion experience happens in these two different settings, one uh, where he's appearing before the Roman governors and he's being uh, questioned by the Jews that had gathered there, and then the next before Agrippa, um, toward the end of Acts chapter 25 and 26. 
And he's appealing to his testimony and how he came to faith in Christ and how Christ met him and saved him and how this was the fulfillment of what they had long hoped for. Again, connecting the gospel to something historic, something in the past, something that had happened that was real and that was true. Well, I say all that to just drive home again the point for us. We must be careful not to get persuaded or influenced to think that the effectiveness of our ministry, the effectiveness of our mission, or the effectiveness of the gospel to save is contingent upon our cleverness, our ability to communicate it in some newfangled, clever kind of way. I, I, I'm, I believe that, that what we are doing here at Faith Community Church and many churches who are, who are doing this, a similar kind of ministry is going to become more and more and more significant and paramount for us. That, that more and more people are being lulled into thinking that, that the, the Christian life is one that is tied to this world more than it's tied to another. That it is, it is oriented toward being a balm to the ills and pains that we experience in this life, rather than being a penal substitutionary death that where our sin was placed upon a sinless Savior, and we are destitute apart from that grace gift from, from God. And we are separated from God apart from that, and we are, need to be reconciled to Him. And that in that reconciliation and in that new life, we are to walk in such a way that we may face persecution and trial. In fact, we likely will face it if we are faithful. And that just like the Apostle Paul said, we enter, to the kingdom of, enter into the kingdom of God through much tribulation, he says in Acts. Now, why am I making such a deal of this? Well, I recently heard um, some teaching that really troubled me. Troubled a lot of people, not just me. But I want to give you some ideas about what is being propagated, even in our community. Um, this pastor said this when starting this church he said we embraced new styles of worship new styles of teaching new styles of communication new styles of children's ministry different kind of architecture we decided that if there's anything unnecessary in the way of people coming to faith or understanding faith or even exploring faith we want to get rid of it we want, the make, we want to make the setting more appealing. We want to make it easier for people to listen. And this is, the, to me, the, the key statement. We want to make the church a little bit less detached from the real world. A little bit less detached from the real world. Another part of this message said this. The Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura is the Achilles heel of Christianity because over time it resulted in Christians pointing to the Bible as the foundation of faith rather than merely the authority for what we are to live by. 
Many people are raised to view the Bible as the foundation of their faith. As the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And if all of it is not true, then none of it can be trusted. It's a house of cards. So in other words, if someone can come along and claim that there's some part of the Bible that's not true, then everything about it is untrue and your entire, the entire basis of your faith comes crumbling down. And I would just argue, I don't know where else we go. I don't know where else we go for the authority that comes together to make up our faith, the faith that was once delivered, the faith that we hold to. So our challenge in this day and time, and our challenge in the ministries that we are carrying out, is to remain faithful to something old. To be willing to proclaim a message, actually the same message, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, faithfully. When you look at the ministry of the early church, and in particular when you look at the Apostle Paul's widespread evangelistic ministry, particularly among the Gentiles, that's what you see. You see him going into a community, and you see him proclaiming the truth of the gospel over and over and over and over again. Then you see him going back to Antioch, for example, and then turning right back around and going on another journey and visiting the same people and doing the same thing over and over and over again. Why? Why? Because his ministry was not about him. His mission was not about his message. It was about the gospel. It was about the truth. It was about what God had done and what God had revealed. It was about what God had promised long ago and is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And since all of this took place, the events for particularly that we're studying now took place a couple thousand years ago, our appeal is to something that's really, really old. And it's an appeal to something that's old that most people today, at first blush, are not very interested in. If it's not new, if it's not tied to new, dis- new discovery, new scientific exploration, something oriented toward new technology, if it's not associated with that, then it's just not that compelling a story. So the question before us is, as a ministry and as a church and as individual believers is, are we to somehow accommodate to that, or do we remain faithful in gospel witness, in proclaiming the truth clearly and faithfully as the Apostle Paul did over and over and over again? Well, the Apostle Paul ultimately finds his way on a ship to Rome. He appeals to speak before Nero. He appeals to speak before Caesar, to take his case to Caesar, and he's granted that request. And the end of, of Acts, you have Luke recounting this, with just really tedious detail, this, this amazing journey uh, from, uh, to Rome, from Caesarea to Rome. And you have this excruciatingly detailed uh, account of the shipwreck that they encounter. Another indication of the authority of Luke as, as a historian. 
uh, writing this with, with excru- excruciating detail um, just to record the events that took place there. But there again, you see the Apostle Paul responding to everything around him in a way that's, that's the acknowledgement and the recognition that his life is not his own. And we end the, the time of, of Paul's journey here where he's under house arrest in Rome. And it's during this period of time where he's under house arrest in Rome. It says in, at the very end of Acts chapter 28, it says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So this is a situation where the Apostle Paul is not in, this is not his final imprisonment. This is not the imprisonment that he's, he's writing from when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. This is a prior imprisonment. This is a house arrest where he has tremendous freedom, and he's ultimately released for a period of time before he's imprisoned again. And where we're going to go next is we're going to kind of move our way from this into um, an, the sort of the, the conclusion of Peter's life and ministry, because all this begins to come to a head. What happens is the Apostle Paul is released from prison, but a couple of years after that release is when the city of Rome, half the city of Rome basically burns to the ground under, under Nero. And many people are suspicious that Nero is the one who had something to do with setting, setting the city ablaze because he was a, an aggressive builder and, one, and, li- and liked to build things to kind of his own glory. And he had no place to build. And so people were suspicious that he might have had something to do with it. So he shifted blame to the Christians. And in AD 64, the, the, the treatment of Christians became deplorable and aggressive for a period of time. And that's where Peter comes back into the scene. And you start to see Peter writing, for example, in First Peter, writing to Christians who are under that kind of persecution. Severe, severe persecution. Which, again, leads me to this, this point of clarity in my own mind and a point of real concern for uh, people who are, who are being taught and led in such a way that orients the Christian faith toward a life of ease and convenience. When everything you read in the, in the New Testament, in particular in this span of early church history, and even the years subsequent to that, you see that over and over and over again, the church finds its way into heresy and abandonment of the truth in pursuit of selfish pleasure and an orientation of life that's, that's characterized by ease. And you see the church being refined through trial and persecution and suffering. And that's the cycle that you see playing out over and over and over again. And I just ask you the question, and not, not, not worldwide, there's certainly suffering and persecution for believers that's taking place in other parts of the world, but in our, in our life and in our culture and in, in, in our society that we enjoy here, how would you characterize, in general, the mindset and the actual experience of the church in general, other than something oriented toward ease and comfort and self-satisfying notions of spiritual life and faith and practice. So I, I started by saying I believe that what we're doing is important, not just because it's generally important, but I, I believe that, that the 
um, the need for the truth to be proclaimed as historic in nature, as tied to truth that has been revealed on the pages of Scripture, and to proclaim that with clarity and authority and passion and conviction, and for that proclamation to flow out of hearts and lives that are genuine and sincere, and that have, just like the Apostle Paul, you can't tell me that this is not true. I was on a road, and I was headed to do the work of Satan himself, thinking I was working for God. And that's where Christ met me and completely turned my whole worldview upside down. And what I believe to be true is not just true because I see it on the pages of Scripture, but God has revealed it to me personally through His special calling, His special grace that He demonstrated to me. This is my testimony of the truth. We have to be people who are rooted and grounded, not only in a historic faith, but we're constantly reminding ourselves of that moment in time where our eyes were radically opened wide to the truth of the gospel. And where we once thought we were okay, we realized that we were the farthest thing from okay. And we had to come face to face with the reality of our sin and cry out to God for salvation. And no one, no one can ever take that reality away from you. It's that kind of conviction and that kind of confidence and that kind of proclamation that has to be characteristic of us in our day and time. And we must be faithful to it. Well, any final comments before we close in prayer and turn the room over? Yeah. You know, what you just said is the most important thing I feel that we have to offer for the world and to the lost. The power of the gospel that has changed my life. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I'm really expert in is how God is working in my life and how he revealed himself to me before I came to know him. And the difference that the gospel is making in my life every day that I live also. Yeah. And people really are desperately looking for the truth. Yeah. And the truth is in us. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to think that we have to become real sophisticated, you know, in our communication, real sort of intellectual or real clever, instead of just saying, you know, I I once was blind, but now I see. So, God help us, right? All right, let's pray.